Well, today we come to another eminently practical text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, which pertains to the workplace, to employee-employer relationships. It speaks to real-life situations. It speaks to a situation in the life of virtually everyone who is present here today. You recall that verse 11 of chapter 2 begins a new section in Peter's epistle on applied Christianity, on how those who have been saved by the grace of God and that wonderful salvation described in chapters 1 and the first part of chapter 2 are to live out their lives day by day upon the earth. And you recall that Peter, by the Spirit, has told us that our conduct before the world is very significant and that God uses the good deeds of his children to call sinners to salvation. And then he begins to specify certain areas of good works, what he means by those good deeds. And the first area, it turns out, is obedient submission to civil government. In verses 13 through 17, probably not the first area of good deeds that would have come to our minds. And now we come to the second area today, which is obedient submission to employers. And that is a section from verses 18 to 25. And we're going to take the first three verses of that section today as we consider submission in the workplace, the attitude God requires of Christians toward their employers. And there are three verses, and we shall notice three things. We see first the general principle in verse 18, secondly the necessary motive in verse 19, and third the helpful explanation in verse 20. The general principle is stated in verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. The persons addressed servants in my Bible and in most Bibles, the Greek word oiketai is a word for a household slave. Household servants or domestics might be a reasonable English translation. And that word, as used here by Peter in the Greek language, eventually became virtually synonymous with another more common Greek word in our New Testament, The word doulos, which means bond slave or slave. And so Peter is addressing slaves, primarily, apparently, those who are domestic servants who live in the home and who attend to their master's family in various ways. But the word, as it evolved in its meaning, is broad enough to include all those in the Roman Empire or really anywhere in all the world who are in the relationship of involuntary servitude. And so before we continue to consider what Peter has to say about that, I think it would be advisable to stop and consider some things about the practice of slavery. And first of all, we need to understand something about slavery as it existed in the first century in Rome or in the Roman Empire. Slavery, we are told, was very common anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were in some form of slavery. 
the variation in the percentages depending upon who you read and also apparently depending upon the location. In the more rural areas, it was the lower end of the percentage, maybe 25%, but in the larger cities, such as Rome, it approached 50% of the population. Slavery was obviously very entrenched in Roman society. In fact, it was the main workforce of that day, and it was the primary relationship of employers to employees, if you want to use that, that terminology. Because there was not this free workforce that we have in our day and that we are accustomed to. Basically, in Roman that day, there were three options. Either number one, you were self-employed, and that was the largest option. More more people were self-employed than anything else, employed on their own farms, employed in their own crafts. They were In many cases, a combination of a skilled workman and an entrepreneur because they also had to market what they made. And so most people were self-employed. The second option was to be a day laborer. We read about that in one of Christ's parables about the man who went out into the marketplace and hired people who were standing around. And those who were not slaves and were not self-employed or their own employment had not been sufficient might might go to the marketplace and hope that someone would come by and employ them for a day. And then the third option was slavery, and that's where most of the workforce was engaged. Slaves in the Roman Empire were initially captured in warfare. They were captives. But, of course, with the passing of time, many of them were actually born into slave households and thus were born into slavery. Legally, slaves had very few rights. We can read early statements, both by Greeks and Romans, about slaves being virtually the same thing as a tool, the only difference being that it speaks and a tool does not, or slaves being nothing more than an animal, a domestic beast, again, with the ability to speak. However, in practical terms... In much of the Roman Empire, slaves were much better treated than what these kinds of statements might indicate and probably much better treated than is our concept of slavery as we have known it in the history of our nation. Many of the slaves in the Roman Empire were well-educated professionals, doctors, lawyers, teachers were often slaves. Often, I would say most of the time, they lived in generally good conditions, living in the house with their, with their owners and generally in quarters that were not that much different from those occupied by the family. And they were generally well-dressed, well enough dressed that at one time someone uh, introduced a bill into the Roman Senate to require slaves to, to wear distinctive garb so that people could tell who was slave and who was free. And that never was passed. Furthermore, slaves in the Roman Empire were generally paid for their services. Low wages, to be sure. Not a great, great wage. They were certainly uh, taken advantage of, and slavery was very much to the advantage of the owners to be able to have a cheap labor, but they were generally paid, and Because of that, many slaves were able over time to to purchase their freedom, which was an option which was available to them. 
And therefore, in the Roman Empire, slaves actually were better off economically than day laborers. The difference, of course, being that slaves were involved in involuntary servitude and day laborers at least were free to make their own decisions. But as far as who was better off financially, the slaves were generally better off financially than were day laborers. And so slavery in the Roman Empire was quite a bit different from what we generally envision as slavery in our day. And I think part of that can be seen by the fact that there were apparently so many slaves, bond slaves, in the churches that are referred to in the New Testament scriptures, and they were free enough to be able to attend these services in apparently large numbers. They were not quite as as uh, oppressed as slaves have been in other parts of the world at different times in history. That brings me to consider the church's position on slavery. The church has generally recognized that slavery is not an institution prescribed by God, like marriage or civil government or authority in the church. Nothing Paralleling these areas has been prescribed by God in regard to slavery. But it is also clear that there is no command in the scripture to abolish slavery. It was recognized as part of society wherever it existed and was dealt with accordingly. In fact, in Old Testament Israel, slavery was regulated by Mosaic law, both indentured servitude, which is really what the slavery was, what is called slavery, what it involved the children of Israel, as well as foreign slaves that fell more into the category of bond slaves. But the thing that is evident is that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was allowed no social distinctions within the church. And this is where the difference, the vast difference between the world's attitude and the church's attitude towards slavery becomes very clear. There are many texts in the New Testament that are similar to this one that I'm reading in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, where Paul said, For you are, all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And therefore, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no recognition of this social distinction between slave and master. And therefore, if a slave was a godly Christian and showed, showed leadership, as often they did, slaves being uh, highly educated professionals in many cases, then it was not unlikely nor unusual that a slave might be a deacon or even an elder in the church and therefore in the church actually have authority over his master. Because social distinctions did not apply to the church and to the relationships within the church. These kinds of social distinctions only applied outside the church in the world. And furthermore, most people have concluded that if you carefully follow the biblical requirements of Christian brotherhood and carry them out within the church, within relationships between believers, 
It makes the practice of slavery virtually impossible among Christians for a Christian master to own a person as his property who is another brother in Christ, just starting with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, would seem to strike a blow at that relationship and many other such precepts that make it virtually impossible to continue to maintain the practice of slavery in the practice of Christianity. But it is obvious, is it not, that as far as the church was concerned, the concept of slavery in the world was considered to be outside the jurisdiction of the church. The church really had nothing to say about the practice as it pertained to the world, only as it pertained to the church. The church is not commanded to abolish slavery or to organize some kind of social movement to bring about the abolishment of slavery. That's outside the jurisdiction of the church. Of the, of the, church. the world is outside the jurisdiction of the church. It's only how these relationships pertain within the church that is of, of special concern to God's people. And so that brings me to ask and hopefully to correctly answer the question, in the civil war between the states in the United States of America, who was right and who was wrong? You probably waited 30-some years for me to answer that question. <laughs> well, let me answer this question the best I can from a Christian standpoint. And I would say, number one, Christians who supported war to abolish slavery were wrong. There's no indication that Christians should have been organizing, trying to bring together pressure by use of government, by, by using uh, social movements outside the church to bring about a change like this in society. Christians should have recognized that their responsibility was to to end such relationships in the church within brothers and sisters in Christ by simply following the precepts of God's word. And so Christians who, who supported war in order to bring about the abolition of slavery, I think, were in the wrong. But I must also say that Christians who segregated slaves to an inferior status in the church were also in the wrong. Christians who kept slaves when slavery was, was uh, still legal, would allow slaves to attend church but not to have the same, the same relationship, the same privileges, the same, the same level of involvement as the members of the church, even if the slaves were born-again brothers in Christ. Generally, they had, would have to sit in the slave gallery or some other place, and they could not participate fully in the life of the church, certainly could not rise to offices and leadership within the church. And then once that slavery was abolished, what happened? Those same people immediately segregated the slaves to their own churches. They weren't about to allow these former slaves to have status within their churches, to have equality within their churches, to have the possibility of rising to a position of authority in their churches. And so who was right? Neither were. Who was wrong? Both were, as I see it, from Scripture. 
And there are a lot of lessons there that I wish I had time to pursue. But I must return to my text. And so the persons addressed are slaves. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And what is the required action? What does the Apostle Peter, by the Spirit of God, require of those who are in the slave-master relationship? He requires that they be submissive, that they be obedient to their masters. Submissive. The same word that is used in verse 13 in relationship to civil government. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme and so forth. Very same word. It means to rank yourself under. It's a military term. And it recognizes the hierarchy, the rank in military service. And the same thing pertains in civil government. And the same thing pertains in the slave master relationship. In fact, the general principle of submission that was begun in verse 13 extends on into verse 18 to the slave-master relationship and on into chapter 3 to the husband-wife relationship. This same basic principle is now applied into many relationships in life. Submit. The standing duty of slaves to submit to their masters. Because, as we see in Peter's epistle, there are many institutions in human society that involve both authority and obedience, and where those institutions exist, God's people will gladly submit and obey where they are in a position where they are called upon to do so, up unto and not beyond violating the word of God. Always our submission to the authority of Christ supersedes all human authority. But slaves are to submit, be submissive to your masters. To your masters. There are several different words that Peter could have used that would have been translated master. The most common one is kurios, often translated lord, but it has the idea of master and is very often used in the slave-master relationship. However, Peter, by the Spirit of God, chose another word. It is the word despotize, from which we get our word despot. The strongest possible word that he could have used if he wanted to emphasize the authority of the master over the slave. I think there can be no other explanation for his choice of this particular word except to reinforce that in the eyes of God, masters have authority over slaves, an authority which Christian slaves are going to recognize. And so be submissive to your masters with all fear, we are told. With all honor, with all respect, may be what Peter has in mind, or many commentators believe that actually this with all fear phrase probably refers to their attitude toward God, though of course a disrespectful attitude toward the master is not permitted by the language here either. But because of where this phrase is actually placed in the Greek sentence, earlier in the sentence than we see it in our English, it very likely could have that meaning. But this is probably the critical part. Because Peter goes on to make a distinction between two different categories of masters. And 
instructs Christians not to make any distinction between these two categories. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Not only to the good and gentle. Good. That's a word that means upright. A a word that means beneficial. The masters who are upright and beneficial to their slaves. And gentle. A word that means considerate or reasonable or fair. That's the kind of master you would like to have. And if you have a master like that, it's relatively easy to submit. It doesn't come automatic because there's something within us that doesn't like any authority. And so sometimes even in the case of good masters, there is a measure of rebellion. But nevertheless, where a master is good and kind and gentle and beneficial and fair and considerate, then generally the idea is, well, they deserve my service. They deserve my obedient submission, and I will give it to them. But Peter says Christians don't look at it that way. Christians are submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, also to the scholios, another Greek word from which we get our English word scoliosis. The curvature of the spine. And the word means bent or crooked. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to those who are bent, those who are crooked. That is, those who are dishonest, those who are perverse, those who are, who are bent in their character, those who are crooked in their dealings. Those who are unfair in the way that they deal with you. Those who break their promises. Those who deal with you in unjust ways. You are to be as submissive to them as you are to the good and gentle. That requires grace. That's why we think maybe that with all fear attaches to our our fear of God, because it's only as we fear God, and we'll see that more in the next verse, but it's only as we fear God that we'll be able to carry this out. Peter obviously recognized what is true, and that is that wherever slavery exists, there are always some good masters and always some evil masters. Those who have defended slavery at various times in history have generally looked to the good masters and said, see how, how, much, how helpful they are, how beneficial they are to their slaves. They've actually done them good. They, they have uh, helped them. They have lifted them from a lower status, and therefore that makes the, the uh, institution of slavery a good thing. But, of course, there are also the evil masters who are crooked and perverse and who are sinful and who exploit their slaves in many, many different wicked ways. And the institution of slavery allows for both. And both are going to exist wherever slavery exists. And Peter recognizes that. And he says that the Christian submission is not based upon the master's character or behavior. It's based upon the slave's relationship with God. It's not up to the slave to make an evaluation of whether or not his master deserves his obedient service. But it is for the slave to recognize that he has a a higher master in heaven, and this is what his heavenly master 
is requiring of him in his earthly sphere. And therefore, because he fears the Lord and is obediently submissive to God and to his commandments, he will obey even perverse and evil masters, not because they deserve it, but because God instructs him to do so. Peter doesn't deal with the situation where a master commands a slave to do something which is blatantly sinful against the word of God any more than he dealt with that in the civil government section of his instructions. But we know from other passages of God's word that the principle is always we must obey God rather than man. And even a a master over a slave and a slave was, was supposed to give his master absolute obedience and the law backed him up in that. But even in that kind of authority, if a master commanded a slave to do something which was sinfully wrong against the Lord in heaven and against his word, then the slave would have to desist and receive whatever punishment was meted out. Thankfully, in our day, we have more options than the slaves in Peter's day because we don't have slavery, because we are... are employers rather than bond slaves, if we are not satisfied with the instructions, the character, the general uh, actions and behavior of our supervisor, we always have the option to find another job. But what we don't have is the option to disobey, to carry on a rebellion, to organize, to resist. There are enough things about the Roman society and the fact that basically the slave-master relationship was the predominant employment relationship in, in the world of that day. There are enough things that make it clear that these instructions, though immediately applying to slaves and masters, do apply broadly and reasonably to all employer-employee relationships as well. This is God's will for employees, toward their employers. We are to be submissive. We are to obey them. We are to carry out their their demands and requirements up until they require us to do something that is contrary to the word of God. And we are to do that toward those that are harsh and crooked and perverse and unjust and undeserving as much as we are to do it to those who are kind and considerate and beneficial. The general requirement is humble, faithful, steady obedience to your superior in the workforce as unto the Lord. But secondly, we take up the necessary motive And if you don't have this motive, then your submission does not gain any blessing from God. But here's here's the necessary motive, verse 19. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And Peter now talks about these unjust circumstances, which were alluded to in the last part of verse 18. These masters who are harsh, crooked, bent, perverse, dishonest, and therefore bring about very difficult and unjust circumstances in the lives of their slaves. But Peter says if one endures grief, suffering wrongfully because of conscience toward God, that's commendable. 
In fact, verse 19 can be summarized in three simple statements. Unjust circumstances, accepted for the right reason, gain divine favor. Unjust circumstances, accepted for the right reason, gain divine favor. If you incur grief, a word that means sorrow, pain, either physical or emotional, incurred for no just reason, no wrong on your part, maybe simply because the master is cruel and devilish and perverted and just delights in hurting people, maybe because your master hates Christ and delights to torment Christians, maybe because your master resents the fact that you are are a better person than he is, that you have better character than he does, you're more honest than he is, you are more morally upright than he is, and he resents that, and he's going to take it out on you because of that. If for this or any other reasons you are suffering unjustly, if you accept it because of conscience toward God, because of conscience toward God, because your God-trained conscience prompts you to, because as a child of God, regenerated by the Spirit of God, and indwelt by the Spirit of God, and taught the Word of God, you've come to understand that this is what God requires, and therefore your conscience directs you to do this. And if because your God-trained conscience leads you to submit to unjust treatment for God's sake, or this phrase, because of conscience, could mean because you are conscious of God. You're conscious of God's presence with you always. You're conscious that you cannot do anything that God does not see. You cannot say anything that God does not hear. You cannot act in any way that God is not fully aware, that God is everywhere present, and He's He's with you, and you're conscious of that at all times, that God's presence is with you, that God's will has been made known to you, and that God will approve if you will submit to unjust suffering, and if you will act in the face of injustice with a consciousness of God's involvement and respond accordingly. In other words, if you will trust the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things, even including this injustice that you are experiencing. If you'll trust the sovereignty of God to protect you in these difficult circumstances, to care for you when you are treated unjustly, to judge Those to bring proper divine vengeance at the appropriate time upon those who have acted unjustly. If you will remember that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And you will commit all this to God and trust in His sovereignty to deal with this properly according to His will, according to His wisdom, according to His power, according to His time. Then you will gain divine favor. This is commendable. We kind of had to go through this verse backwards to really understand what it's saying. So starting at the end of the verse and moving forward, if you experience unjust circumstances and accept them for the right reasons, a Godward reason, then this is commendable. 
God approves of this. This is commendable, my Bible says. Literally, this is grace. Charis. Grace. Probably used not so much in the sense of unmerited favor as in the sense of thanks or credit. And it's used that way. For example, by Christ in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says in verse 32 of Luke chapter 6, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Same word, charis, grace. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Credit. Thanks. It certainly speaks of God's approval, and it probably also speaks of God's reward, of divine favor, not in the sense of unmerited favor, because here... You merit it by obeying what the Lord has said. If you don't do this, you forfeit it. But if you do do this, you are going to earn a reward. You are going to earn favor from God. God is pleased and God will reward you. Again, according to his time and in his way, you'll have to trust him for that. God will reward you. You say, how soon will I get rewarded? Will it be today? Will it be tomorrow? Will it be in this life? It very well may be, but it will certainly be. Be certain in God's time and place. There's no question you will be rewarded in heaven and probably upon earth as well. But just be content to realize that if you will be obedient in this, God will reward you. In fact, the Bible teaches that God rewards all of our obediences and all of our good deeds. All the things we do as a, in, a, in a heart desire to honor and please the Lord, are rewarded. Even giving a cup of cold water in Christ's name will not lose its reward. So certainly submitting to unjust suffering in Christ's name for his sake, for conscience' sake before God, will not lose its reward. God will reward you. We also need to understand that verse 19, though it applies in context to the employer-employee relationship, and many of you, no doubt, are suffering on your job. You are, you are in this situation. You have a, a boss, a, a supervisor, a superintendent who is, who is wicked, who is sinful, who is unjust, and who has it in for you because you are a Christian. You perhaps have been passed over for promotion and have not been treated fairly. And how you respond to that is vitally important. And if you respond to it in the way that Peter tells you, you will be rewarded And you will bring honor and glory to God in the workplace. It will be a wonderful testimony. But we need to recognize that verse 19 that Peter applies to the employer-employer relationship is actually a statement of a general principle that applies to far other things, many other things as well. When he says in verse 19, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one, that is anyone, that is whoever, endures grief, suffering wrongfully, it becomes apparent that this is a general principle that Peter reminds his readers of and says this general principle that applies to all areas of life also applies to the slave-master relationship. Don't forget it. But now it's good to remember that this is a general principle that does apply to all areas of life. 
In other words, when things come into your life that seem to be unjust, whether it has anything to do with your employment or not, a family situation, maybe the disposal of a will, it seems unjust. Same principle applies. If you will accept that with an eye toward God and how to please Him and what He would have you do in that situation, He will approve. He will command. He will reward. When trials and difficulties, tragedies as we call them, may come into our life, and our initial reaction sometimes is, that's not fair. God, why did you allow me to get sick? God, why did you allow me to have this accident and be, be uh, crippled? God, why did you take my loved one away from me in death? That doesn't seem fair. Uh, uh, uh. We're in no position to, to judge what is fair and unfair in these situations, but here's the principle that always applies. If in the face of what seems to be unjust suffering, wherever it comes from, in whatever context it is found, if we will endure suffering with a consciousness toward God, He will approve. He will commend. He will reward. And you demonstrate your trust of God, the genuineness of your faith, by believing that and acting accordingly. You can bring great honor to the Lord or dishonor to Him in how we respond to these kinds of things. Now we come thirdly to the, to the helpful explanation of verse 20, and Peter kind of extends what he has already said, and he distinguishes two kinds of suffering. There is suffering that is deserved, and then there's suffering that's undeserved, and he's telling us it's only the undeserved suffering, the second category, that gains divine pro- approval in this way. Verse 20, For what credit is it When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. No credit for deserved suffering. It's a rhetorical question. What credit? What glory? What fame? This is a different word than charis that was used earlier, but it's really a synonym. If you are beaten or buffeted or harshly treated, thinking again of this slave-master relationship in which slaves were often beaten... If you, are, if you are punished, if you are, are, are uh, incarcerated, it can apply to a lot of different things. If you are passed over for a promotion or are punished in some way for your own faults, literally your own sins, and you take it patiently, what credit is that? Now, again, not everybody does even take those things patiently. Our sinful nature sometimes rises up and and calls unjust what is actually just. Many times we're not in a very good position to judge appropriately, and many times we consider that our behavior has been uh, very good, very exemplary, or at least if, if not perfect, not all that bad, and the punishment was, was way too great for whatever we did that was wrong. But if we will acknowledge that our punishment is deserved when it is deserved, that's good, but that's not the kind of, of uh, patient endurance that gains reward. That's just doing what anybody ought to do, saved or unsaved, like the prisoner doing his time, who acknowledges, I'm here because I broke the law, and I'm paying my debt to society. 
And I'm going to pay my debt. And when I get out, I'm going to live according to law. It's good to have that attitude. As I say, not all prisoners do. But acknowledging that your, your uh, punishment is simply the result of your own wrongdoing, that's not the kind of credit that Peter's talking about here. No, it's the kind of punishment that comes unjustly. When you do good, the last part of verse 20, and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable with God. When you do good, when you obey, when you work hard, when you do right, when you do what you are told, and yet you are punished for it, if you will do that with a consciousness toward pleasing God and accept that in the right spirit, God will commend you, God will reward you. It's even more difficult when others around you are shirking and cheating. When you are doing right, you're working hard and doing right, and they're shirking and cheating, and sometimes they get the favor of the boss and you get the punishment. They get the favors, the promotions, and you get the opposite. Isn't that hard to take? Just commit it to the Lord. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God is omniscient, that he knows all things? Do you believe that God is aware of what's taking place? Do you believe that God is able to deal with the situation in his time and in his way, which is better than in our time and in our way? Just take it patiently and commit it to the Lord, and he will reward you for that. God is pleased. Similar to what Christ said in Matthew 5, In the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the just, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And he wants us to act like he does. Godly. Godlike. In our behavior. Now, here are some lessons that we should learn from this passage. Number one, as fallen sons of Adam, we have a fundamental problem with authority. We all do. That's what sin is. That was Adam's sin in the garden, deciding to to make his own laws, make his own rules, deciding to evaluate God's. God's law, God's prohibition, and decide whether he thought it was a good one or not, and to reserve his independent judgment about whether that was the right thing to do or not, and to go ahead and act according to his own law, his own decision, his own authority, contrary to God's. That was Adam's sin, was his fundamental rebellion against authority, God's authority. And that is the essence, really, of all sin, whenever we choose to disobey God's commandment and to do what we want to do in its place, that is basically rebelling against authority, divine authority. We all have a problem with that. And that, dear friends, is the fundamental issue in coming to Christ for salvation. It's not just... Do you give mental assent to the facts of the gospel? And if you'll pray with that in mind and ask Jesus into your heart that you'll be forever saved. The problem is that 
you as a fallen son of Adam and you as a sinner who have purposefully and deliberately sinned against the laws of God, you are in rebellion against your Creator. Now, only the blood of Christ can cleanse you from those sins, but if you're going to be rightly related to God, there has to be a fundamental change. You have to give up your rebellion and you have to submit to God's rightful authority in your life. That's the change of heart. That's the change of mind. That, in essence, is what repentance is all about. We turn from our own sinful determination, insistence to do things our way, we give that up and say, I acknowledge that God has a right to rule me and I submit to that. That doesn't mean that we live perfectly and obediently, sinlessly in the light of that, but it means there's a fundamental change in our attitude from one of basic, steady, persistent unyieldedness and rebellion against the authority of God to one of Bowing the knee, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We bow the knee and acknowledge his right to rule us. You see, the rebellion that's, that's exposed as we deal with our relationship to government or our relationship in employer-employee relationships and many times is exposing a more fundamental rebellion in our hearts that is an issue between us and our God. That's the one we better begin with and deal with first. Furthermore, we learn that Christians are to be respectful and submissive to all human institutions. That's an important aspect of our testimony before the world. And general prevailing attitudes of rebellion do great damage to the testimony of Christ, as Peter told us in the previous section. And therefore, I think some of these attitudes need to be seriously addressed in American Christianity. Here we are announcing to the world what their attitude toward God ought to be and how they ought to get right with God and quit doing these things that are contrary to God's will. And so many times we have all kinds of things in our churches, in our lives as Christians that have never really been examined, much less dealt with. And there are all sorts of things that need to be examined under the microscope of God's word and brought into conformity with the word of God. I believe the Bible tells us judgment must begin with the house of God. We need to get our lives in order. We need to get our churches in order. We need to get our house in order before we feel we're in a position to march out and tell the world what they're supposed to be doing. Where should that begin? With me, with you. Let it begin with you right here, right now, today. Shall we pray? We acknowledge, O Lord, that you are sovereign, that you do have the right to command us, to forbid us, to require us that we owe you submission and obedience and we owe it to you and we owe it to all those that you tell us to do it toward and therefore Lord help us to be obedient and submissive to all those human institutions where where we find ourselves by your providence 
and be willing to submit to them as unto you, regardless of whether we think the people over us are deserving of it or not. We realize, O oh Lord, that's not the issue. You are deserving of it. You are deserving of our obedience. And therefore, Lord, we yield it unto you. And Lord, those who are here today who are at fundamental enmity with their Creator, Lord, show them that. And by your Spirit, bring them into submission to Jesus Christ, who is Lord, as well as Savior, as we ask it in his name. Amen.